What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Rather than critique or score films out of five or ten or tell you what we love or what we hate, I sit down with the filmmaker and get them to give us an insight into the process of making their movie, what they discovered, what they learned, all those kind of things. Or I get to sit down with a, a horror film fan and get them to tell me five great British horror films that they think we should all take interest in. Either way, this podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So, if you enjoy it, please make sure to subscribe in iTunes, and if you've got that bit more time, write me a review too. Three, two, one. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Yorkshire director Mitu Mizra. Hello, Mitu. Hello there. Good morning to everyone. Good morning to everyone indeed. Uh, We've come on to talk about your film Lies We Tell. Do you want to tell? Do you want to give us a brief synopsis to what Lies We Tell is all about? Uh, yes, um, it's a story about a driver called Donald, played by Gabriel Byrne, and he's thrown into the world of a mysterious woman called Amber. Even though they come from the same city and are almost neighbours, they do come from completely different worlds. And then Donald and Amber, and then Donald embarks on a journey, which reveals to him the, under, the dark underbelly of Bradford. And he discovers things about Bradford that they never knew existed, even though he's lived there all his life, and finds out the reason in his mind for why Bradford has demised so much okay. over the years. Okay. So, um, how and how and where can when can people see the film? It's released on February the second in all the showcase cinemas. Yeah. And if you don't have access to a showcase cinema, it'll be on the platform on, on VOD, video on demand with iTunes, Sky, and a few others. Cool. Well, that's very exciting. Congratulations on getting... Is this your debut film? Yes, it's, 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 it's certainly my first film, yes. Well, even bigger congratulations, then. Not everyone gets yeah. to, the, to, the, to cross that line, so uh, exciting times ahead for you. Um, yes, I think so. Yes, sorry. Yeah, go on. So let, let's start with uh, let's start with how you how you, how this project came about. The the, the I, I noticed that you, you you're, you're credited on the screenplay list, and there's two other writers there. So at what point does this? How is this story conceived? And and what was oh. your what was your influence on that? Right. Um, as a child, I grew up in Bradford. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I loved cinema. Uh, I would beg, borrow, and steal for a ticket. Hollywood, mm-hmm. Bollywood. And my first aim in life was not to be poor. And after, at the age of 44, 45, I felt I had enough money to park to be able to focus on um, a, a latent, um, 
uh, passion really. Mm -hmm. And uh, the events in Bradford, the um, from from childhood to now, the demise of Bradford has upset me for many many years. And um, it was the story came from a blend of several true stories. And then I had to go to, because I'd never been to film school, I knew nothing about it. Mm -hmm. I went to film school at the age of 44, 45 to learn how to write. Right. And the story, uh, the story in my mind started to come out. And then eventually I, uh, we, we managed to find Ewing Glass and Andy McDermott, who helped me to uh, strip the story and then make it into a screenplay. Okay. Now, it went, you, 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 you talk about the sort of being inspired or influenced by your sort of disappointment about the demise of Bradford. What, what in particular was it that made you think that the, the story needed to be told? Um, I just felt that Bradford, because it's caught up in its um, own activities, it doesn't realise that people are avoiding the city nowadays. There's certain teachers, certain professions that try and avoid Bradford. And I don't think people realise, the, the people that live in Bradford realise why that's happening. And I was hoping to show Bradford, which also, I believe, is a photo snapshot of the world today as well. So even though it's a story about Bradford, yeah. it really is a, it's a story about abuse of inheritance, really. Hmm. Uh, how cultures, uh, how culture of money is passed down to the next generation and how that's abused and manipulated. And the room created in Bradford by political correctness uh, has created so many subcultures which actually dominate the prime culture. And I was trying to express that really in, in Bradford to show that. And I also believe that's what is a reflection of a lot of the cities in, in, in the UK as well, and probably Europe. I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess the, the the sort of the elephant in the room in, in your studies, you've got the two the the clash of cultures is you've got you've got British Muslims and you've got not British Muslims, haven't you? In terms of the what what the film sort of explores. So you've got British Muslims, you've got British people, and you've got Pakistani Muslims, and you've got Indian Muslims. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's not just about Muslims and um, uh, non-Muslims. It's really the story of culture, how they blend, how they mix, how they interact, or how they don't interact, and how they don't, how little they know about their neighbours really. Mm. And it's lack of understanding from both sides. And I was trying to create some understanding, trying to create a bridge so, so people could understand both sides of the fence. Yeah, because you, you you don't the the film doesn't show um, what we might traditionally associate with with, with looking at looking at these uh, at different cultures is the sense of the minority being the the victim of of abuse or oppression or anything. This is about how a uh, a mindset has set in, isn't it? In some in some elements of of, uh, of yes. Bradford's communities that they've got. Oh, for both sides, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what I'm saying is, it's not. It's it, it, you've not done the, the the film doesn't sort of have. Um, there wasn't like um, like in, in films I've seen in the past where this has been tackled. You you often get the kind of overt. Here's some. Here's the racist scene or whatever. But there's none of that in the film. It's much more much more nuanced than that, isn't it? Yeah, it's more of a noir thriller. It really is an entertaining film. Yeah, no, for um, sure. And if you decide to take away the skin away from the top, uh, it, it's sort of. If you move the veneer from the film, then you, then, it, then you start to see the layers, mm. and and they all tie in to the prime um, aestheticness of the film.
And going going back to school, as it were, to do the film school stuff. At, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm 46, so you know, I can appreciate going yeah. going back to school at 44. Um, to, to what did what did that help in terms of your love of cinema? What did going to school to learn about it teach you that you weren't aware of? Well, first, uh, I learned what the word narrative meant because I okay. didn't go to school properly. Okay. And uh, when I was trying to tell the story to someone, I mean, because I was fortunate, there was somebody called Mani Dutton, who was a famous film driver, in, uh, sorry, a filmmaker in India. Right. Uh, and he came to the UK in 40, in, uh, when I was 43, 44, and he wanted to make a film on some of the things I'd done in my life. Uh-huh. And from there, and from there, I read the script that he wrote, and I thought, ah, but this is the, this is the way to tell the story I want to tell about Bradford. Right. I mean, but, you know, I mean, Bradford being the northern powerhouse it was in the 60s and 70s, and what it's become now. Yeah. So, um, and then someone said, Richard, what's your narrative?" I said, "What does that mean?" And they started to laugh. And then I thought, oh. And then I had to go back to basics. So I went to film school to learn, basically, uh, how to follow a track of a story, uh, to make sure that the story is the thing that's most important, rather than the um, anecdotes Mm. and the branches of stories. Well, then that. But the problem was that the kids that were there were 19, 18 years old, and the teachers were younger than I was as well. And most of the teachers were 30, 32s, and the kids were really rich people's kids that were just put there because the parents didn't know what to do with them. So then eventually uh, we managed to find a new class from Lincoln University, who was a, a screenplay writer there. Then he spent four years, spent four days, a, four days a week for four years coming to Bradford to teach me how to write. Right. And um, so basically, to to create the script, that was what what, what helped, and that's what, and that's what ultimately got the interest from Gabriel Byrne mm. and the rest. Now you say you say that's what got the interest to Gabriel Byrne, like like it's normal, but um, I can't imagine it was as it was as easy as as. Um, it's just asking him. So, in a sense, how, how do you get how do you get the likes of Gabriel Byrne involved in your project? You know, you're a first time filmmaker. That's that's yeah. not always a good sign for any, for anybody coming in who's established as Gabriel is. So, what was it? How did that conversation start, or even be, opportunity it to begin with, with the script? Really, uh, okay. We're very, very fortunate that we had access to his agent, and okay. he sent the synopsis to Terry, his agent. And yeah. She passed the synopsis on, and Gabriel said he wanted to read the script, and then within two days of him. Of us sending the script, we had the phone call. He wanted to meet the directors, mm. the uh, Seven, the DOP, and myself at the time. Yeah. And then we went to House to meet him, and in a pub actually, and he paid the bill as well. So that's <laughs> 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 something I've learned is a, is, a, is a big no-no in the acting world. But, but he's a gentleman, Gabriel was. He sat there and he knew the square root of every sentence on that script. Right. He spent two. He spent two and a half hours going through every character except Donald, uh-huh. and asking me, uh, as the story writer, all the questions to ensure that no character was too deep. He was asking me questions about every character, to, 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 asking me to prove to him why they were 3D. And then after two and a half hours, he spent one hour discussing Donald. Why? And after, after that, his one question was, is this politically funded? We said, no, because as long as you put that, I'm ready to do the film, and he reduced his fee by half simply because of the script, the power of the script. He loved the script and the nuances and what the, and what the story attempted to tell. Sounds... Sa- sa- Sorry. I was going to say, it sounds like he was uh, the sort of, um, uh, what do you call it, like, <laughs> like, like the ultimate teacher in the end when he's, when he's sort of getting you to pull apart your screenplay oh, yeah. and justify all your characters. That's amazing. Yeah, but it took me 12 years to write, so I knew it inside out anyway. Mm. I mean, I mean, I could read it backwards to him if you wanted. Mm. 
would describe everything. I mean, for example, there's so many moments cut out in the script and he was asking me what what makes the characters balanced and real? And that mm. was his key thing. And then he was satisfied uh, within three and a half hours. And then he said yes then and then. And he even said to his agent, he's prepared to knock half his fee off there and then. And the only condition was that the film wasn't uh, funded by a political party. So <laughs> It, it was it was interesting listening to his um, his Yorkshire accent as well, watching the movie. Fantastic, fantastic. He did he did really well, didn't he? Was what I asked him that once in uh, in Ireland. I said, uh, "How long do you think it'll take you to uh, to learn the, the Yorkshire accent?" He goes, "I'm not bad at it. Nothing." Now it's interesting. I mean, being I mean. I mean, gone through a similar... I mean, I was a little bit... I was like 37, 38 when I sort of turned my attention to trying to learn screenplay writing. And one of the mm -hmm. things that they, they, they impressed on us was, was about, um, was about you know, single-person narrative. Now, Lies We Tell is, is, is a number of narratives floating around, isn't it? There's a, there's a, yes, there's yes, a, yes, yes, yeah. You know, you... When I did the first few drafts before I met Andy Newman, it was 400, 450 pages. It was a TV series, really. Yeah, 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 my word. And it took about five, seven years to keep boiling it, boiling it, boiling it down to the to the essence of the story, which took time for me because I was inexperienced. Yeah. So what, what in Sorry. that in that sense when you're boiling it down, what was what mm -hmm. for you were the main um, when you're in these discussions with Ewan and that, what were mm -hmm. the main storytelling challenges to get it down to be a sort of movie screenplay then? Um, reducing trying to get the poignant moments, for example, if you've got seven or eight moments from KD or Donald and trying to lump them together and treating them like a mathematical equation really. It was mm. like X squared plus Y squared equals that plus that, then factorizing that down. So I, so I took a mathematical approach to it, really, and, and mm. then the emotion came in later. So what do we need? And it was more like binary thinking, really, digital thinking. It's, I mean, it's interesting, the two... I mean, obviously, Gabriel as Donald plays the sort of key... Is, he, he sort of holds all the other characters together, doesn't he, in his, in his kind yes, of... Yes. It's kind of... It's his point of view, you see, I mean, and the most difficult thing of the story was to try and tell the story from Donald's point of view, to keep him involved in the story, because in, in reality, people like Donald and Amber don't really meet or don't know their surnames from each other, if that makes no, sense. No, that was a real... Because I didn't get that until the, the sort of... I mean, this is a little bit of a spoiler, it's not a massive one. When he gets mm. pulled over by the police and he's got yeah, Amber yeah, in the car yeah. at the start, I just assumed, because obviously he was... Um, what's Harvey Cattell's character called? Um... Demi, Demi. Yeah, because because he's his driver. I just assumed you knew who, who, who she was. I didn't. I didn't for one minute think at yeah. that point. Obviously, you you learn. Obviously, as the story goes, that that's part of his secret life that, that even the driver didn't know, so to speak. But um, well, well, the driver suspected, but actually didn't know the person because yeah, that, that's Demi what I mean. Has, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, because Demi had some respect for Donald in that sense. He wanted to keep some respect with Donald. Mm. I love Donald that much. I was. I mean, I really enjoyed um, uh, Jan. Is it Odin? Jan Odin. Jan Odin. Yeah. KD. KD. It's up, his character. I mean, there's those. There's the overt scenes of him where we see his sort of his his, his evilness, I suppose, and his calculate. He's calculated <laughs> and he's calculated. But actually, there, there was there was bits like there was bit moments in the film where he almost like ghosts into scenes. So it's like to me, it was almost like he was like the devil in the film, if that makes sense. A conflicted devil. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah he's a conflicted devil. Uh, he, well, he's, he's, he's making the most 
from uh, his inheritance of the culture and in his inheritance of living here. Mm. And he's manipulating uh, both cultures to suit him. And that makes him look like the devil. But yeah, but, but actually it, it's quite... But it was more the fact that it was... It, what, yeah, you're right, in his actions, yeah, but it was almost... It was also like the way you made him sort of come into some scenes. Yeah. It was like... It was almost like he... Poof! He just... You know what I mean? Do you understand what I mean? It's like... I just felt like he had like a magic quality to him. <laughs> I wouldn't say... Um, he's there watching. He's in love with Amber. Yeah, and yeah. It's a, love, it's a love that the world, other than the world they come from, will find difficult to understand. Because ultimately, if you go down to the, the, the layer five of the film, it's basically a love story between Amber and KD. Mm. And she thinks of him as a, as a brother, and he thinks of her as a lover. And that's the conflict, because mm. he knows both sides. He's, so he, so he, he cannot hide behind, like, for example, Amber's mother. She can turn out and say, when are you going to stop doing this by British standards? Katie can't say that, because he knows British standards. Mm. And, he's playing, and he's playing both sides all the way through. My one of my favourite moments, and I think it was a really cleverly done scene, was where, um, when, G when, G when we first meet Donald's ex-wife, and, <laughs> and Katie turns up with his, with his, ginger, his ginger oppo, and... Yes. The 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 use of <laughs> the um, the use of the the the, the gun as yeah. as a way of getting someone to tell you the truth and and it wasn't done in a typical in a typical fashion. I mean this idea no. of I mean shoot me or tell me the truth. That's amazing. That was really powerful. Yeah, but you see. Like I said just earlier, just a few seconds ago, that Katie's playing both sides. He knows by doing what he does, that Donald will not shoot him. And mm. for me, uh, it's a metaphor of the abuse of decency. Okay. If you know what I'm talking so he. No, no, tell, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. That, that gun, for example, he would not give to someone in America because he would get shot. He would not give that gun to someone in China or Vietnam to get shot. I see what you're saying. He, he might not give that gun to someone in... Um, Greek, Greek, maybe, uh, but certainly in Europe, he could give the gun to more or less anyone, and no, he would not be shot because of the um, the DNA of Europe. Mm. That's really good. That's, no, and it works. It it, it, feel, it, feel, it felt a very true moment in in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he knows that he's not going to do it. He's a decent bloke, and it's an abuse of decency, which is something that I think has been going on for fifty-five years. Okay. So, in terms of the production, then, um, I'm, I'm guessing looking at it, you, you, you shot it on home turf, didn't you? You didn't have to go anywhere to yes, find these. Look, I love Bradford. Like I've said to everyone, uh, good, everything I've got has come from Bradford, good, bad, and ugly. <laughs> so, and I still live in Bradford, and I still live in Bradford. And for me, it had to be because it's a Bradford story. It had to be shot here. And what was your experiences of? I mean, obviously, having grown up and, and, and knew every probably every nook and cranny of Bradford, how did your view yes. of Bradford change after having shot a film there? What was the experience of shooting a film in Bradford? Um, it was very, very good. Uh, everybody was very, very sportive. Uh, from from the MP, from the local shopkeepers, from the local businesses, from the local, everybody sported the whole film all the way through, and I was really grateful and happy mm. to see that that. Uh, that our city, when it comes to it, can help its own. Mm. 
And and what what was um, on, when you were looking at, looking at the script on the page and thinking about what you needed to get on screen? What elements of the shoot did you find most challenging, and how did you overcome it? Ah, oh, the most difficult shoots were actually dealing with um, initially first. I mean, it was a baptism of fire all the way through. To be fair, because I'd never been on a set before. Right. Okay. In my life. I mean, because when we wrote the screenplay, we were looking for a director for three or four years, and then, then every director wanted to change the character of Donald. They wanted to make him potentially a killer, which I didn't want to do. So I wanted an absolute clear guy that didn't say boo to a goose to do to, to happen at the end. What happened? Mm. Uh, and um, it was well, it was uh, the most. I think the two there were two two difficult stages. One was the first day of the shoot. I didn't know what a boom was. Okay. And, and, and it was and everything was ready for the first shot and everything else and there was this big big microphone I didn't know what it was to be honest because it's, it's not like a normal microphone it's massive mm. and I asked and I asked what the hell is that and everyone froze and uh, that was the first day of the shoot so Gabriel looked at Andy the producer and also my co-writer and he called him to his trailer then five minutes later I was summoned to the trailer and I walked in and Andy left the trailer and Gabriel had taken his shirt off and he was walking the trailer up and down up and down and I sat down and it felt like he was going to walk because uh, he realized I'd never been on a set before. And mm. I told him Alf, that I'd never directed a film before, but he didn't realize I'd never been on a set before. He didn't know, I didn't know what cutting was, what intercutting was. So he was stalking up and down, up and down, up and down, and then eventually he turned on to me, and then I can't use the words he used. He goes, why the hell didn't you do a small intercutting course? <laughs> so it's like, uh, before that he said, uh, he goes, I know you told me that you've never directed a film before, but you never told me you've not been on a set before. I said, yes, I didn't tell you that. And then he spent another two minutes walking up and down, and everyone outside was thinking he was going to walk. Then he turned around to me and said, why the hell didn't you do a small intercutting course or something? And fortunate enough, I'm from the business world, I looked him straight in the eye and I said, arrogance. And after I said arrogance, he just burst out laughing. He put his shirt back on and he says, come on, me too. Let's, we'll sort it out. From that moment onwards, he helped me all the way through. So I had a lot of guidance from Gabriel. He really, really did. I mean, he helped us so much, over and beyond what he promised at the start. Now, now Harvey, sorry. Go on, say. No, you carry on. No, no, it's okay. And then Harvey Keitel, uh, we sent the script to Harvey Keitel after Gabriel had said yes, and he rang me from New York before he said yes, and uh, he said, uh, "I use the language he used." <laughs> he said. He loved the line, uh, the only men who get caught are those who don't love their wives enough. Mm. He rang up and, and said, me too, that's the best line of my career. I'm flying across, whatever fee you want to pay me, pay me. It's so Buddhist that even Buddha couldn't have thought of it. That's what he said. <laughs> so can, can, you, can, you, can you tell the listener then where, you, where, you, where, where, where are your soul searching that line come from? Watching the world, from watching the world and a lot of people, a lot of friends. I mean, because it because it means many things, doesn't it? In a way, it it, it either means be honourable and honest, or it means if you're going to cheat, don't let it show. Uh, I don't want to just go into it too much more. I mean, it, it's for everyone's imaginations to where they want to go, because ultimately, it's a fantastic lie. It means mm. nothing really. Yeah, 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 yeah. True. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it means nothing. It means everything. Yeah, it's not. It's not what you say. It's how you say it, isn't it? <laughs> well, it, it depends what you say it too. 
<laughs> yeah, true, true as well. Yeah, yeah, true as well. Con- context is all. So, in, in, in it being your first time on set, me, me too, yes. what 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 help did uh, Sancho Sivan give you and and support in terms of from a cinematographer point of view? What was your conversations with with him about what you wanted this film to look like? Well, we'd approached him to direct it before, and then he was the one that said that the only person in the world that could direct it was me, because nobody else would understand the nuances and the uh, depths and the layers of the film. Mm. And he promised that he would stand next to me shoulder to shoulder. I, I, I told him I'd been on set before everything, and he, he does it pretty well. Mm. He's a friend of mine in films also, so he knew me, my background. Yeah. And uh, he stood with me shoulder to shoulder all the way through and guided me, and without him, there's no way on earth I could have even got past the first day. Really? Yeah, it was with me all the way through. And, and and for me, it was important to get a DOP from outside the UK and also a composer from outside the UK. Okay. Uh, because I wanted, uh, uh, I didn't want anyone to have preconceived ideas about Bradford because no, if it was a DOP from here or a, or a composer from here, they would know Bradford and they would pigeonhole it into a small city. I wanted someone to come here and make Bradford look like New York the best they could. I tried to make it the best from their imagination to make it moody as they possibly could. Mm. And diffs to... I mean, there's great films been made in the past uh, in the UK, Sporting Life, but I, I don't remember them visually, I remember them story-wise, and I remember the power of them. Mm. But the but the most moodiest film in the UK I've seen been shot in the UK is, but it was a film by Michael Antonioni called Blow Up. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. And he had an Italian DOP, and I've never seen uh, London look so funky as he made it. So I was quite keen to get someone that had no preconceived ideas about Bradford and the UK, really. That's really clever. I understand what you're saying. It's sort of because, I mean, I, I, I grew up across the Pennines and, you know, I've been out in Bradford a couple of times and stuff. So if, it, if you're asking me to make a film there, I'd have a, I'd have a really short-circuited view of what whatever Bradford is meant to look like as opposed to Bradford as the backdrop of a film. That's a blank canvas, isn't it, if you're going to make a film there? Yes, and the composer also is a big near prize. He's Oscar nominated. He's done a lot of work for Kislowski, the Three Colors Blue, and Decalogue. I don't know if you know about them. Mm-hmm. And his and his perception of Bradford was also because he's from Poland. Because we because we converted the script into Polish for him to read, and he loved it. Wow! And he also knocked his fees down and everything else. And he flew across eight, nine, ten times to help us all the way through. He loved the he loved the project. And his sense of music, and, I, and I was, for me, it was important not to go for the typical thriller music, to you know the big, big, big stuff. I yeah. wanted people to feel. I wanted. I wanted the film to be one piece, really. And I think the composer, and, and I think the beginning prize did a fantastic job for us. No, it's 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 it's, it's a really a really a, a really good way of looking at it in the sense of bring outside influences to to heighten the cinema because you know Bradford. It doesn't need anybody else to know Bradford, does it? In a way. It, yeah. it reminds me. I mean, it, I mean, it's a, probably a crass comparison, but have you seen the film Drive, Nicholas Wan and reference film? Yes, I've seen a Drive, the recent American film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a Danish fella making a film about LA. Now, obviously, the way he saw LA was different from if he'd been an LA director. Yes. You know, it was like a love letter to LA rather than nuts and bolts. Yeah. It was shot really well. Yeah. Very slick as well. But it's that idea. It's the, it's the idea of bringing foreign eyes, <laughs> like you, like with your with your your DOP. You, but then, but in the sense, when you talk when you talk with DOP, Sorry. though, you you you're obviously familiar with Bradford. You you know, are, are you saying make Bradford cinematic, or are you saying give me this when you're talking to your DOP? No, no, no. 
I'm saying make Bradford cinematic. I mm. want, see, I firmly believe films like Kes, mm. small, small stories, are the two films that touch the world, a blockbuster, which we can't do, mm. or a small story from a small city that can grow around the world. And that was my aim, really, to do something like the, have the effect of Kes, for example. Mm. So it's a vocal Bradford story, but, but told big. Mm. In sense, you know, it's a small story, but told big. And I thought someone from the outside um, would have, would give it a chance, rather than, uh, like I said before, I didn't want anyone with preconceived ideas thinking about Bradford small, and let's make it small, let's make it gritty, let's make, you know, that mm. kind of stuff. I want someone to have an open mind to it and then take it as they, and I'm not skillful enough or experienced enough to tell them exactly what to do, so I had to rely on their sense and their judgment of it, and that's why so we were very, very fortunate with the people around us. Well, as good as the people around me, that's one thing I've noticed in making a film. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a very much something that I hear a lot on the podcast, is that it isn't about any one person making a no. film, it's about everybody coming together to make the film, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. There's no way on earth one person can do it. I mean, one person can't do much alone in the world anyway. And to make a film is nigh on impossible. So mm. you do need a bit of luck, and the luck comes from hard work and good intentions. And I think we had that all the way through. There's, 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 there's bits of details in it that um, I was watching. I understood what they were in the context of the film, but as someone that's not in it, it, directly linked or involved with any, any um, Muslim families, I, I didn't know... I've never seen this... The, the kind of wrapped up piece of paper in the thread that was clearly like a curse of some description. What, 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 is, what is that? It's called a Daviz. It's, um, see, in Islam itself, uh, it, it's a pure, um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a very pure religion, to be fair. I mean, yeah. It's between you, the Prophet, and God. Mm -hmm. And there's practices now in the UK which contradict the fundamentals of Islam, and this and this is one of them. Mm. For example, they're trying to manipulate God's will, and it's believed. Um, it's it's quite a um, the the aim of the Daviz is to show that religion um, is used as a stick, and it's used to put fear into kids to mm -hmm. manipulate them. And the moment you, and then ultimately, the moment you take the fear away and let them be free, um, they're happier people, mm. they're happier with God, happier with their uh, system, okay. their philosophy. So it, it's it's something that's used to scare kids into doing, into manipulating what they want. Hence, um, it's not a forced marriage situation, for example. It's it's a manipulated situation, mm. and how, and I'm trying to show how one way of manipulation. And I've never, I've never, I must admit, I've never been to a wedding before, and it was interesting seeing. So, the the idea of the husband being out, the the husband to be being outside the ceremony and waiting for news yeah. of yes or no. Right. That's yeah. the that's the typical ceremony, is it? Well, a typical uh, Muslim ceremony is the boy and the girl are in separate rooms. Yeah. And they ask the girl three times if she wants to marry the boy and once yeah. she said yes three times then they go to the boy to ask him and once he said the same thing three times and then they're married they're never in the same room together uh, during the ceremony yeah no that was a real eye-opening that for me watching watching the film well that's been going on for 1500 years 
No, that's fine. No, I understand. I understand it comes from from a real place. It's just obviously for you know my, my you know not, sadly my own my own narrow, narrow, some narrow experiences of the world. And it was uh, I think no, but it's just good. It was interesting seeing it and you know getting that view on a different a different way yeah. that things happen. It's not. It's certainly not. A, that's why it was. I mean, we were lucky to get Lisa Jarrad to uh, to use her vocals over the wedding sequence. Mm. Because that was, the brief to her was that uh, that sequence, her voice, and, and we left it to her completely, and uh, there's a beginning of prize in it between them. Mm. And the brief was that she's she's uh, that piece of music was that the voice is an advocate of all the women for the last 1,500 years that have uh, suffered manipulations under the umbrella from Muhammad. Right. And she was and then, then her brief was that she's gone to see Muhammad to tell her what's happened over the last fifteen hundred years without upsetting him. So that was her complaining to the creator of the philosophy. Right, okay. Wow. Um in in your uh, the, the other person that, that has a kind of that the, the film leans on a lot and we'll just we'll close on this one is, is the character of Amber, uh, Sibylla yeah. Dean. Um, what was what was the casting like for that? Because I can imagine getting oh, very, someone. Very very difficult. We must have had two hundred and fifty auditions on tape. Seriously, seriously, very very, yeah. Because um, and Sibylla Dean is actually half Pakistani, uh, half half English that lives in Australia and then grew up in LA. <laughs> uh, a real, a real world citizen. <laughs> yeah, and she had an Australian accent, so she spent 16 weeks, like Janadine, because he's from London and Birmingham, yeah. to learn the accent and spent time to get to know the people. So she spent 16 weeks here before the, the shoot, and she was prepared to do that. So that was part of the audition, was, are you prepared to come and get under the skin of the character? And she was, and to be fair, she delivered, I think. Mm. No, no, I will. I, I, until this morning, when I was reading up about her, I, 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 I just believed she was York. She was from Yorkshire. I'd, 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 I'd bought it. So, so in that sense, what, what was it? What did she? In, in, all right, th th there's a contract in terms of this is what you have to do. But in terms of what you could see in her for the part of Amber, what was it uh, yeah. from all the other people you auditioned that you saw in in her that made her right for the part? Uh, looks for me, uh, I consider Sibylla has a classic beauty. You know, from the days of Sophia Loren. Uh, Raka Welsh in, in that era, and, I, and that's what I was quite keen to find. I, I, I was trying to find a bone structure on the face that, that isn't modern, mm. but yet attractive. Okay. And I think the Audrey Hepburns, uh, the Sophia Lorenz of the world, are the ones that stick, stick in my mind more than anyone in the recent era. And I wanted someone that had that sense of uh, empathy, because something, even though she's pretty and beautiful, you feel something for her, for her pain. Mm. And I felt, and I felt, had that. No, she, she, she's an amazingly complex character in the sense that oh, yes. yeah. she, she's free in 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 the what we would see a, if you were to see her day to day. But inside, because of all the conflict from the family, she's had to separate herself from. She's forever in conflict, isn't she? Even though she might appear to be fine on any given day, actually, you don't she leave at all. You don't leave at all mentally, do you? Given the way a character is portrayed, it's impossible because. If, if, the script, the most difficult part was that I was trying to show that the, that someone like, um, a character like Amber in Bradford in the UK or Europe or in America, to, to survive, to live, they need nine faces. Mm. One, 
One for the father, one for the mother, one for the brother, one for the lover, one for the friends, one for the employer, one for the commute. So, you know, she needs nine faces to survive. So she's always in conflict. She never knows what she has to do. She's always flicking, flicking, flicking. And she's bound to make mistakes in that. Mm. And is that, so that, is that more, is, uh, from a cultural point of view, is that more complicated for a woman trying to live that life than for a, for a, a young boy going down a similar yes, path? I, Yes, I think I, uh, I think the boys might have to have three or four faces to survive. Yeah. Uh, but whereas for a woman, I think they need more faces to survive in a way to have a balanced life. But it's difficult. Well, look, sir. Let's uh, let's remind people then. When can they see Lies We Tell? Um, it starts on February the second. It's released on February the second, and all the showcase cinemas. And at the same time, it's released on video on demand with iTunes. And Sky, uh -huh. and uh, I hope the I hope people respond to it the way you have, my friend, uh, because it is a film that you watch, you'll be entertained, and then you think. Uh, and the aim was that if ten people watch it, ten people leave the cinema with, with ten different points of view. Yeah, no, I mean it, it's a, it's it's a film. It, the way the way the film resolves itself is not where you think it's going to go when it starts. It really it really winds a path that you're you get lost on, and then you're shocked by, as much as anything else, I thought. I mean, being a cinema buff, uh, for me, that why it took so long to write was trying to keep it original, trying to make sure there's no scene from anywhere else. I mean, I'm, I'm quite snobby like that, really. Mm. You know, I, mean, I love fish and chips and newspaper, but, I, but when it comes to cinema, I do like to... Because um, I believe that my university has been cinema. I've not been to university properly or colleges, so whatever I've learned has come from cinema, and whatever aspirations I've had have come from cinema, because, uh, because of the background I came from, really. So I have a lot of respect for cinema, and I think cinema has a big, big part in the world. What, one last question. I was say, one last question. What would, what would you say, cinematically speaking, then? What would be your sort of key influence that you, that you, or influences you were, you were bringing to Lies Retell? Even, I mean, notwithstanding you're trying, you're trying to keep your, your presentation original, what were you channeling into Lies Retell? Um, I like Kislowski very much. I like Michael Haneke. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Roman Polanski, which I believe is the ultimate filmmaker when he gets it right. Mm -hmm. and, um, the films that come to mind when I think when we look at ours, it's films like Crime Game. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Uh, Hidden by uh, Haneke mm -hmm. and Blue from um, Kislavski. Yeah, films that yeah, yeah, makes sense because it is because especially like with something like Hidden, is that you're dropped into yeah. what seems like a normal world and then re then then yeah. slowly reveal there's nothing normal yeah. about any world in the end. No, but it's a guilt-driven film, is Hidden. If yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is similar. I mean, KD John, as you said, he's conflicted. He comes in, but ultimately, we show that he's guilty of what he did when he mm. was a teenager. But he's still in that world where he doesn't know. Um, his sense of love, his the body of his love for Amber, he, he cannot really figure out. Even though he's got everything he wants, he wants her. Indeed. And she thinks about the brother. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, That's thank you very much for uh, giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your uh, for your time, and I really, really appreciate Britflix.com podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So if you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe at iTunes and write me a review. Thank you.